Amen, amen, and amen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome here at Calvary Chapel, North Country, and those online, welcome. Just as you're getting settled in and opening up your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 7, where we'll be picking up tonight, chapter 7 and chapter 8. Yes, two chapters. We're going to read quite quickly uh, to get through those this evening and within the two hours that are slotted here for us tonight. Um, one quick announcement as you're getting settled. Hey, as, as Mark had mentioned, um, Passion Week, Resurrection Sunday coming up here on April 9th. That's the purple flyer. Make sure you grab that. We will have sunrise service, Lord willing, outside uh, on that day in the front of the church. If not, we'll come inside. So rain or sunshine, whatever. We've done it in a little bit of a little bit of snow at one time, and uh, so anyway, come warm, dressed up warm, bring a chair. Uh, we'll have some chairs out there, but if you want to bring your lawn chair, that's fine too. Uh, you can stand as well. It's just it's a short uh, sunrise service. We'll te- uh, have some worship and uh, and teaching, followed by continental breakfast uh, in here, and then at nine o'clock we'll have our normal regular prayer time here at the church at nine o'clock every Sunday, not just the on April 9th, followed by our 10 o'clock service uh, with communion. And we'll have a feast that day, so bring in something if you'd like to bring uh, something um, for lunch to share with the rest of the family, and, uh, and we will have a, a feast there. So uh, we have refrigerators and everything, so if you come in the morning, you have a place to, to put things that need to be cold uh, or plug it in if you're bringing a, a uh, something that uh, with a crock pot or something to that effect we have we can accommodate all of that but invite a friend so to grab another extra flyer hand it to a friend um, a lot of people who do not go to church normally will come to church on a uh, Easter Sunday so I want to encourage you to uh, to share uh, what's happening here at Calvary Chapel North Country uh, with that said let's uh, let's open up in prayer and we will get right into our study here uh, Father again we thank you and praise you Again, for allowing us to be able to gather here uh, in this building that you've provided for us this evening to open up your word, to worship you, and to in song, yes, and also to worship you as we study your word, and worshiping you as we fellowship with one another, and just, again, what a blessing it is, Lord, through a midweek. Uh, everyone has uh, already a story of what's happened this week, and, and the challenges, and maybe highs and lows, but Lord, we get to come and just sit at your feet and be fed spiritually and be encouraged spiritually and be tested and changed and and molded and shaped in your loving hands and those online lord we thank you for those who are able to uh, through media to be able to connect with us here at calvary chapel and uh, all the way up here in the north country of uh, watertown new york again what a what a blessing it is lord that you've allowed us to be able to have a place here to gather this evening in jesus name we pray amen and uh, as we left off last week, uh, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, uh, I, I might have skipped, we took a little break there, and uh, we were finishing there, Gideon talking about this, the fleece. Uh, he was just getting going through, and he was, God was using him, and again, the Midianites were coming and oppressing against Israel, and it was going to lead to a, a battle, uh, a big battle, but the angel of the Lord, Jesus in uh, the Christophany, the, Jesus Christ came and revealed himself to Gideon there in chapter 6. 
which was, you know, resulted in Gideon just really encouraging him and being led by the Spirit. We see the fact that in chapter 6, verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So he was empowered by the Spirit of Christ upon him. And he blew the trumpet and, and we see all the things taking place. But there was a point there in verse 36 through 40 where we see the famous moment where he's casting his fleece out there because he just needs the reassurance of God. Are you God? Are you really with us here? And he throws the fleece out. He didn't do it just once. He did it twice. He was, he was testing God. <laughs> if you really think about it, he was really, God, are you really, am I hearing clearly that you're with me and empowering me to do what you're calling me to do here? Because we're about to hit, 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 go to blow. We're about to go to battle. And I really need to know that you're with me here. Which leads us into chapter 7 and 8. And they go together here because it's the battle of the, with the Mennonites. And how God is going to reveal himself. Because again, God is leading Gideon. It's not like he empowered Gideon and said, okay, you're on your own, bud. Good luck. Let me know how it happens at the end. It's like, you know, sit down and pray if you're able to pray. Talk to me later about how, how the battle goes. No, the Lord was leading him through the battle. The Lord gets the credit, full credit of everything that God is doing in and through a God's, a God's servants. In this case, Gideon, he get, God gets all the credit, and we'll see that tonight, the test of, this test of faith, because we're going to see how God really does test us in our faith in regards to doing what God's called us to do. Uh, we're all tested here. <clears throat> so we start off by Judges chapter 7, verses. Just first, let's take the first three verses here, um, because God tells Gideon to tell, he's going to communicate, and you're going to communicate to all the soldiers here, bud. You're going to tell all the soldiers uh, who are afraid uh, is going to be revealed. There's going to be a testing of even the soldiers here, but uh, Gideon, as a leader, is going to have to do that testing as God leads him to do this. And it says, And Jerubbabel, which is really, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Mennonites was on the north side of them on the hill of Morah, in the valley, and the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now, right there in the beginning, okay, I'm empowered. Okay, God, you're empowering me to go do this. I, I've tested you. You're, you're with me. and Everything's going great. Okay, we're about to go. And God says to Gideon there, you're going to tell the people, you're going to, you're, we're going to rise up. We're going to go into battle here. But he says, let me just tweak a few things. <laughs> and we see this great test of Gideon's faith right here. He said, okay, I'm testing you, God. Are you with me? Okay, great. Is that how it works? Okay, let me test you now, Gideon. I love this, this story because what we find here in the scripture, we see that he had 32,000 men. When he asked the people of the tribe to go to war, 32,000 men showed up. Now think about that, because later on we know that how many were the Midianites? We see there was 135,000 Midianites that, were, that they could visually see that we will see. They visually could see that there was, this place was, this valley was filled 
with camels and tents and people, the Midianites, 135,000, and we have 32,000 men. Okay, I think we can do this. I think that God's with us. We could probably do this. But God said, no, 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 no. Your army's way too big, Gideon. Way too big. He knew the hearts of the people. He knew right there, he says in the scripture, you're going to say to yourself, my own hand has saved me. Man, how did you take him out? Well, these hands are powerful, man. I, I took them out. You know, I, I've learned a few moves here. And no, no, God said, I want you to have no chance of taking any credit that, that what God is about to do for you and take out your enemy to remove things. There's no, you're not savvy enough. You're not strong enough. So he says your army's too big. So he commanded Gideon to invite all of them who were afraid to go home. Well, weren't they afraid to come to it? So I always ask the question, how did they get there? Why weren't they afraid before that? It's because they saw the, the enemy. They saw how big the enemy was. And then they said, are you afraid? Uh-huh. You can go home. Okay, a few hundred will go. No. Only 1% eventually stays, right? The first group here, 4 to 1, I think the 4 to 1 ratio, if I think it out right here real quick, but... 22,000 left. They abandoned them. Only 10,000 men were left. So Gideon was probably surprised at the, the, the number of men who were afraid to fight and hoped that only a few hundred would leave. But no, majority of them left. But we are told that they assembled in the place where they saw the 135 Midianite troops. We see that in chapter uh, verse 8 of chapter 7. A huge sight of what's one of the things about doing something for God. You're so encouraged, you're so ready, I can do this until you're right there and then you see the magnitude of what is in front of you and what you have to do and how uncomfortable and getting out of your comfort zone to serve God. And many times people get afraid and get paralyzed and they don't want to pursue and actually do what God's called them to do. They'll turn around and walk away from the the ministry, walk away from what God was calling because it was just too much, too afraid, too much commitment, too much risk. It goes on and on. And here we see they were just too afraid. And so, um, yeah, obviously you're only 32,000 and there's 135,000 and, uh, and you're the underdog and, and there's no, there's like, you're going to have this great bravery and strength that God is going to lift you up above your circumstances and above what you see. And you're literally going to walk by faith and do what God's called you to do. Or you're going to go by sight. And then 32,000 went by sight and they were afraid and they walked away because they don't remember what God told Gideon. And Gideon told them that God said he was already going to give him victory. See, don't forget, God already said you're going to have victory. This is what I called you to do. You're going to have victory. I'm with you. I'm doing this work. But because they were going by sight and not by faith, that test really blew them out. Now, if we really believe the principle that we see in Zechariah 4.6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, then our smallest numbers that we have doesn't really matter if our numbers are few. We still can accomplish great things for God. If we really believe the principle, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20, verse 7. Then the smallness does not matter, does it? Because God's going to do it through you. 
We continue here in verses 4 through 8. We see how Gideon's going to be tested again here. He thinks that's all there is. But watch what happens. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Wait, 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 wait. I just heard you the first time. You're not, you're not really serious. You're not, you're not talking about, you're not, no, no, no. There's only 10,000 now. You can't be serious, right? This is what you're calling me to do here? Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for, there, for you there. Oh, God's actually going to do the testing again here. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, and the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by, myself, by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, and the number of those who lap, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I have saved you. I, have saved you. I will save you. And deliver the Mennonites into your hands. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And they sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now keep in mind here, God already reduced Gideon from 32,000 to 10,000. And then God's wisdom says, and he's testing now the people for Gideon, because Gideon wasn't certainly going to test him to encourage any more to leave. <laughs> he's going to probably be begging them this day. But no, no, he, God says, I'm going to reduce it now to a certain number. We see it went down to 300. That's where it's a little less than 1% of what they started with. They are going to go to battle with their enemy. And he, he did this because 10,000 were still too many for God's purposes to get the full credit of what was going to happen. And we rarely think that the bigness can be a hindrance to the work of God, but this is a good example that God says being too big and having too many resources and having too much of a big of a bank account and having the two, this and this and that, it, it will actually hinder you to take a step of faith. It will actually hinder you. Some people say, oh, of course it'll take a step of faith when I have all the resources and everything's all lined up. Say, no, actually it can actually become an hindrance because then you get all, the, get all the credit for what God's going to do versus allowing God to miraculously work through your life with few resources of smallness, of weakness. Uh, when we're weak is when we, God becomes strong because everyone says, wow, there's no possible way that 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 person could do it. They, they could do that. And look what God did. And it's the same thing here. Yet it's harder to really rely on God when we have many wonderful resources at hand. Even though it can be done, if all the resources that God is, as long as God is the one that brought the resources and as God is the one taking all those resources that he's brought to you to use for his glory, then it works out well. Paul was in danger, if you remember, in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. He was in great danger of being too strong for his own good. And so God used, took Paul and brought weakness into his life so that Paul would keep relying on God's strength and be stronger than ever because God was with him. 
that that, that infliction, the thorn in his side is what kept him humble and relying upon God to be able to do the work that God wanted to do through his life. So God brought them down to this water. Kathleen and I had a ple- uh, the pleasure of going to Israel and going to these springs where Gideon and his army was there. And it reminded me, and it, as I was studying through this, of those moments, Kathleen had pictures to remind me as well to how we re- demonstrated we were one that got down only and scooped up the water and drank from that spring. And we were going to be alert and, and, and wise and be, be counted upon to go to battle for God. And, and it also reminded me that all 10,000 that were being tested by God did not happen all at one time. There would be no way to take 10,000 and stretch them down these streams because it would have been stretched out too far. So over time, as people were getting water, they were observing. God was observing each man who was coming to the water. How was he coming to get a drink? And over time, they were selected, those 10,000, over time. We don't know how long, but they were selected over time. And only 300 of them actually qualified through the testing of God to actually be the ones going to battle. A lot of people have all kinds of theories of why, you know, getting down on your hands and knees and drinking like a dog in the, the stream was not, uh, was not passing the test. But those who got down and just scooped up the water and drank, many people, oh, because they're more alert. Not, maybe not, that may not be the reason. Matter of fact, maybe these guys, those 300 guys, were the biggest fattest guys who couldn't get down on their hands and knees and drink maybe they had to go like this just to get and God says I'm going to get even more glory when I take all the soldiers who are outfit and they're not fit they're not even able to run I'm going to use those 300 the biggest guys who could barely make it the ones with the lips and all the kinds of battle wounds and from the beginning we're going to take those 300 guys who were set aside by the army because they they didn't think they were qualified to continue those are the ones i'm going to use ah maybe that's what god did because he wanted to get full credit not the rangers that all showed up not the 300 rangers no the ones that were on convalescent i kind of lean that way because it's it's kind of fun as I ponder on that. But we see God assured Gideon that the victory was certain, even though only 300 men. Now the Israeli army was less than 1% of the original focused here, and the proportion was a, like 400 Midianite soldiers to one Israelite soldier. And Gideon could only trust in God because there was no, nothing else, nowhere else to turn to trust in himself or his army. Then what happened? In verses 9 through 11, we see that uh, God allows him to actually get some insight of what God is going to do miraculously. And it happened on that same night, that same night after they selected, that same night they were going to go, God Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid, Gideon, or if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Wow, so even God knew that Gideon was like starting to get afraid. Okay, we only have three guys. 300 guys 
And I see these guys. And I, whatever I'm looking at, I know the ratio is not there for me and it's not in my favor. I hear what you're telling me, God, that we've got victory. We've already got victory. We're already doing it. The enemy is not going to come and be able to win. But I'm still afraid. And God says, I know you're still afraid. And I, th- I love this part of the scripture because he says, if you, you know what's going to help you? You need, you, need, you need assistant. You need your assistant right next to you. You need someone someone to come along your side to encourage you in this, this, this step of faith here. And he has a servant come with him. And you go down now with your, this servant. And it's almost there's a strength when there's two together or two or more. And they're just strengthening and encouraging each other in the ministry. There's nothing greater. And we see they went down there. And when they went down there, God wanted Gideon to really find this encouragement in the visiting of the enemy's camp. What? I'm going to be encouraged going down the enemy camp? Are you kidding me? I'm right going right down in there and getting a full view of what these guys look like? But this shows that when God asks us to do hard things for him, he doesn't fold his arms and sit back and expect us to figure it all out. And, okay, you've got, I've got, you brought this far. Can't you figure it out the rest of the way? No, no. God, by his power, will guide us. And he will keep us. And he will encourage us all along the way. That's a promise. Regardless of how we feel, It's a guarantee when God's called you and leading you to go do these things. He is going to guide us. He's going to keep us. He's going to encourage us all the way. Now it's after your hands shall be strengthened, he says, to go down against the camp. Now this is God's mercy, is it not? He was dealing with the doubts and the fears, and they go together. Doubts and fears go together. Uh, and especially here in Gideon. But God says, I understand your doubts. I understand you're having your fears. But I'm going to reassure you here. And how does he do that? Look what happens in verses 12 through 15. Now the Midianites and Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Oh my, there's a lot. And their camels were without number. As the sand by the seashore in multitude. They were just covering that place. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And and so it was. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. Notice that. He worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Wow! Did you see how much is right there in these verses 12 through 15? He's afraid. God says, hey, take a buddy with you. Go down there. They'll encourage you. Get down there. And it, it's not... <laughs> First of all, you look what has happened here. There's no such thing as chance. 
He gets down there. His place is covered with people. And he happens, God guides him to the right tent at the right time to hear a guy tell him to his buddy, his companion. I had a dream. You want to hear the dream? It's kind of crazy. This, this loaf of barley come tumbling in like a tumbleweed, man. And it, and it literally wiped, his, wiped out the camp. Now keep in mind, the barley bread is a symbol of a poor, humble, nothing of value. I love that because it really depicts what God is saying. Gideon's not much. Not much at all. We're talking barley bread in the vision here. But it, it, it knocked out and wiped out the whole camp. But God allowed Gideon to see a great confirmation of his future work. That's how God works. God always will bring a confirmation through his word, through even situations, just natural situations, or even... Even dramatic. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go, go and have your dreams and try to get them interpretations and, all, and make the decisions only based on the dreams and stuff. like. No, 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 no. That's not what this is saying here, so don't go too far. Test all things to the Word of God. Remember, he already had the Word of God. He already knew what God told him to do. This dream was just a confirmation. It wasn't the initial and leading. Keep that in mind. And where there was a dream, God made sure there was an interpretation. His buddy knew exactly that weird dream. He knew exactly. And what did that person, God gave him that interpretation? God gave him the interpretation to say, Gideon, the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. So these Midianites knew who Gideon was, even though he was not that big of a deal, was he? Enough to be, all they knew is that he was the leader of God's people. Notice that. It says, Gideon the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered. They knew one thing about Gideon, that God was with them. And God was for him. And the interpretation was no question in their minds. God gave that dream. God gave that interpretation. And that was the encouragement and confirmation that God was given by his grace and mercy to to. to to Gideon, that this is of God and what he wants him to do. God used this situation to build the faith of Gideon. He is testing the faith of Gideon, and he, then he also he was building up the faith of Gideon. It does both through the testing. He will test your faith and also build your faith to do the work that God has called you to do. And what did that result in him to do? Worship God. Immediately he started worshiping God because he knew that God was confirming and encouraging and guiding and as clear as can be to keep him on track to do what God's called him to do. And this is hard stuff. There's no accident that the man dreamed the dream that night. There's no accident that he told his friend about this dream the moment it happened. And it's no accident that God, this man had the interpretation of the dream. And it's no accident that Gideon came to the exact place where he overheard the man telling everything and all this working together. Boy, that must have built up the faith of Gideon. That his enemies were afraid of him. But when we are weak in faith, 
And we do become weak in faith at times. We often make our enemies stronger than they really are. We can say that the devil himself is afraid. Even as for a Christian, a normal Christian, a devil would be afraid of what God could do through that Christian. Do you realize that? Do you realize when you become a Christian why the devil just absolutely hates the fact that you came to Christ? Because he knows in God's hands that you can do great things for God, so he was, he's going to try to stop you from doing those great things. And he will send the enemies. But God, again, will, again, he's going to guide you, he's going to keep you, he's going to encourage you, he's going to test your faith, he's going to build up your faith, he's going to bring you through it. So Gideon's encouragement was contagious here. You know why? Because right from there, he starts worshiping God, but he goes back to the camp and he tells the miraculous thing of what God did to confirm. So Gideon's encouragement was contagious. Having received encouragement, he could not help but spread the encouragement to others and his encouragement built their faith. And that's another good lesson for us because as God is encouraging you in your faith and constantly, then you are to then go out and encourage others in their faith of what God is doing through you and encourages others. That's why it's great to talk about the praise, praiseworthy moments because it's like, let me, I have a praise report, man, because God is really doing a work in my life and my family life and my work life and all these neighborhoods and oh, it's amazing what God is doing. That encourages other people. That's why it's so important to be in the fellowship. So what happens? Verses 16 through 18, we see, then he divided the 300 men into three companies. Okay, we're splitting you down into three companies. A hundred each. And he put a trumpet in, into every man's hand. How did he get 300 trumpets? Uh, well, because remember, the other 10,000 and, and the other left their stuff behind, so they have extra trumpets laying around, probably. And with empty pitchers, they got their other pitchers. So every man got to have a pitcher and a, and a trumpet in hand and torches inside the pitchers. See so you picture it? <laughs> Did you picture it? Okay, right. And he said to them, look for, at me and do otherwise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. He's leading. When I, ba- when I blow the trumpet, remember the trumpet is a animal's horn. Don't think of a trumpet up here in the brass section and in, in wind section up here with Jordana. No, no, no. It, we're, talking, we're talking a horn here, a horn, and, and that was what the trumpet was. And, uh, and when, I bl- uh, when I blow the trumpet and I... And, I and all of who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Oh, that's interesting when you read that. You're, literally, we're going to blow the horn and, the, and then yell and shout out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon? Now remember, as you read this, and I go back and forth, I read it and read it and read it and go and cross-check, there's, no, there's nowhere here it says that the Lord told Gideon this is the plan. We don't see that. We see the fruit of it being very fruitful and being of God, but we don't see the fact that God literally said, Gideon split these 300 up into three sections, you know, 
elements of 100 each. But again, it doesn't matter because God was obviously supernaturally revealing that to Gideon in his thoughts because Gideon was a spirit-filled man. Remember, he, the spirit came upon him. We saw that in, in Judges 6.34. And the supernatural can operate very naturally in your life. And here we see that played out in real time. Naturally, Gideon was given the wisdom of God. And God was, on, was empowering him to be, think rightly, to go into a plan of action to go to battle. And he says, look at to, uh, at to me and do likewise. He wants to lead. He says, now watch me. Do this is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to do. Why? Watch what happens and how this plays out in his plan, verses 19 through 23. So Gideon and the, uh, hundred, and the hundred men uh, who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, which is 10 a or 10 10, uh, 10 a.m. to, no, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is the middle watch. It was at the beginning of the watch, so 10 p.m. Here we are, um, is when the guards were shifting, doing shift change there uh, at the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. So picture the pitchers right here, and the flames and the torches, and they break it, and the ashes and the sparks are flying everywhere. In the dead of night, remember, there are, are no light pollution there. It's just stars and moon. Keep that in mind. It's pitch black out in the middle of the desert. And here they are. A hundred is here. And a hundred's over on another side, another side. And all of a sudden, they all blow a horn, crack the thing. Sparks are everywhere. Shouting is happening. Confusion in the middle of the night, on the mid-watch. Can you picture it? So what happens? They broke the pitchers that were in their hands, and then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in the left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled when the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his companion. Notice, the confusion was happening, and you know, a bunch of guys being startled and waking up in the middle of their tents. Can you imagine what can possibly can happen? Swords start flying because all they know is there's confusion going on. And they actually turned on each other because uh, of so much con confusion. So every, every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acha, or Asia, to, to get, or toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, by Tabath, and the men of Israel gathered together Naphtali and Asher and all of Manasseh and pursued the Mennonites. So the Mennonites' shoulders, okay, woke up, explosions are happening, noises are happening, lights happening, movements going on. All of these extra men who are just doing shift change are all walking about. The other men think those men are the enemy, and they're starting to swing swords, and they're all fighting each other. Confusions happen. They start running. They take off running. And Gideon's army never even touched them. They didn't even touch these people. They started running. That's when they started pursuing. So this, the cry was not the result of, you know, of, 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 oh no, this is going to be bad. No, the cry was the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Why would those words 
because the Midianites had already been fearing Gideon and what God was going to do through Gideon's hands. So they automatically, they heard the sword of the Lord, the Lord is coming, and, and of Gideon, so that they were clearly knew. If they didn't know who the Lord was, they knew who Gideon was and their God that was using them. And so that right there put the fear in them. They took off running. The shouting, the panic, confusion. I guarantee you Gideon never, and those 300 men never knew that was how it was going to play out. <laughs> Sometimes we always want to know how God's going to do something. All he said is he's going to do it. But he never tells us the full plans. He only gives us one piece of the puzzle at a time. Until you take that step of faith and then he gives you the next piece of puzzle. And it's like, wow, we would have never figured it out to do it this way. This was even in our, even in our remote way of thought we would get, do what God called us to do. But God gets all the glory because of that. So the first phase of the battle we see here wasn't Really, Israel and the Midianites and the Amorites. No, no, Amalekites, I should say. But as the Midianites fought themselves, and this is a good example, how we can move more than conquerors through him who loves us, Romans 8, 37. We get the spoils of victory because Jesus won the battle for us. And that's, how it, that's actually how they got spoils, is because God did the battle. Well, then there's more work to be done. Then Gideon, and I love this because it's really a characteristic of Gideon, his persistence in, 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 in certainly building up his faith to understand if the work is not done, you just because it did really a good thing doesn't mean you're not to finish the work. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan, and they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed, killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. I guess they were by some big old rock, and that's where they killed him, so now they're going to name him after him, I guess. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zebes. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Now it's interesting, he called upon others that had probably are the ones that were initially left because of fear. Or initially because of what other reasons. But in this case, we'll find Ephraim wasn't even really involved because they didn't get involved at all. Remember, they were, we'll find that they were not happy in, the, in chapter 8. We'll find that out as we go through that. But this is not an unbelief for Gideon's part by calling the people to get involved to go and finish up some of the, the work here. The main fight was taking place. They're on the run. But God started to work with a small number of, of soldiers. God gets the credit, all of that. <clears throat> but now Gideon wanted many to get involved in the work because everyone's scattering, going different directions. 300 men can't go different directions. So he wanted more, more people to cover the scattering of the enemy. 
But they all they pursued Median, and what happened was they did a great work. They got these two princesses and, and took their heads off uh, of these leaders. But look what happens now in chapter 8 of Judges. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Gideon, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? Now you just read it, it's a question mark, but they're not happy. And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, well, Gideon, how are you going to respond to this? You're being, you're, you're being coming against here. There's quite the accusation. What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of the Ebazir? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Median, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their great anger toward him subsided when he said that. Now, when you read that, you're going to go, okay, that, what do you, why, why? Didn't really give the full picture. It wasn't enough dynamic in, in words here. But let me translate for you because the men of Ephraim joined the fight at the very end. After the big, the big fight, after the big miraculous thing took place, then Gideon informs them. Well, no, 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 no. Don't forget. Gideon initially asked for help from all the tribes of Manasseh to be included. Remember, he comes from the tribe of Manasseh. <laughs> Most people, you have to remember as you study, get the details. He comes from the tribe of Manasseh. He asked them, but they would not participate with them. They weren't coming. He asked Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali. Go back to Judges uh, chapter 6, verse 30. He asked them, and the men of Ephraim now gets involved. They go do the work. But after they've done it, they come back and they said, Why didn't you let us know? Why did they respond like that? Because they wanted the prophets and the recognition to being part of this big miraculous thing that God did. And they weren't part of it. Well, you had your chance. You were asked, but you didn't want to have anything to do with it. Why? Well, we come to find out they may have been in cahoots with the enemy a little bit. And they weren't willing to get involved with, the, with certain things. They weren't in, interested in going to do what Gideon's doing. So what happens when your recognition becomes the overall, the, 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 the overall goal of someone in the ministry is to get recognition and they don't like it when other people are getting recognized? Be very careful of that. It's not a good sign. But instead of being jealous about the recognition that others received here for what God had done, because God did all the work, he, didn't, he, he, he doesn't get, no one takes the glory away from God. They should have been happy with what God's people were doing and the fact that God was even still using them to take and be part of it. But when you get want recognition or jealousy, in this case, jealousy was in their hearts, it often hinders the work of God. And that's why God many times will not allow certain people to participate because they're jealousy in the ministry. It causes division. And when God sees jealousy in a man... Or a woman, because of what God's doing through other ministries or doing other things. Watch out, you're not going to participate. And if you do, it's only by God's mercy, and there'll be very little, little rewards coming to you. 
And that's what part of the, 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 the Ephraim didn't like. They didn't get the full benefit of the, of the war and the benefit of the recognition and all kinds of things. But you had your chance. You chose not to. But Gideon did not challenge their pride, did he? It's a good lesson from, the, uh, from a leadership perspective when someone comes against you because of jealousy and, and, and wants to be recognized and doing something they, they didn't were part of. Gideon did not respond in pride. He didn't, he didn't, even though he was challenged, he soothed their pride by complimenting them and giving them the recognition for what they did do for God. And most importantly, he challenged them to get involved in the work of God that was at hand. And he replied was a wise way to deal with contention when people are jealous and coming against what you're doing and what God's doing through your life. It reminds us of Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We must always respond when someone's coming against us an accusation to just have a very soft, soft response and do not respond angrily or harshly. But Gideon seems to have had a continuing controversy with the men of Ephraim because later on here in verse 27, we'll see he, he actually, he's going to make an ephod and, and, and it just looks like it was not right he didn't he didn't do it rightly probably competing and trying to I, I don't know exactly but let's go through it and you can draw your own conclusions but here in verse 4 through 9 when Gideon came to the Jordan he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit right he's still pursuing these people who are the Midianites that are running then he said to the men of Succoth which is in the Jordan area, that's where Succoth is on the map. Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zebak and uh, Salmunah, uh, king of, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zebak and uh, Salmunah now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Basically, what he's there saying is, wait a minute, we don't know how this is going to go play out. Why? I'm not going to be showing favor to you because if you're going to lose this war, they're going to blame, come back after me. We're not getting involved in this conflict between you and them. That's what that means right there. So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Salomon into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the, the, of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel, Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sekoth had said. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. <laughs> yeah, remember they built towers he's in Sakoth. they built a tower so when the enemy come you all got into the tower got lifted up high enough to be able to fight and, and protect you he says I'm going to take down that tower of yours but then he's not going to drag him over the briars and basically going to kill the guys by dragging him over the briars and watch him rip up their, and shred their, their bodies up he, he didn't tell them that just take, take down their, their stronghold but you can sit here and he says 
You can imagine how tired they were. They were exhausted. They needed food. They turned to, turn to the people. There are people there, and they said, no, 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 no. We're not going to get involved because we're not sure who's going to win, and we want to stay on the good side and the good graces of the enemy. Why? Because the enemy was probably intertwined with them. They probably financially benefited with the enemy, so they didn't want to cause any problems because then the enemy was going to turn on them. Doesn't that sound familiar in our world events today? We're economically attached to the enemy. <laughs> and you don't want to make hard decisions and do things because you're afraid the enemy will turn on you. And, and you may lose and they'll, they'll, every, all the companies will lose. Anyway, I won't go down that politic kind of thing. But you watch the, watch the news. You know, there's nothing new under the sun these days. All he did is ask for bread. They weren't willing to do it. And because of their decisions, both of them were going to reap consequences, and we will see that played out here. So in verse 10 through 12, then Zebiah and Salamuna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000. Noted, noted that. They're now the enemy's down to 15,000 from 132,000. All who were left of all the army of the people of, of the east for 120,000 men uh, who drew the sword had fallen. So there was 135,000, now there's only 15,000 left. And then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwelt in the tents of the east of Noba and Yogabaha, and he attached the army, attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zebul and Salomona fled, he pursued them and he took the two kings of Median. So we and, and he, he moved the whole army in this and pursuing this whole army and Gideon just boldly with the Lord with courageous and, and just did a surprise attack and and it was the same three hundred who was now attacking this vast army still fifteen thousand people was still quite large in regards to three hundred and they were exhausted they didn't have food there was no indication they got any food they were still going on empty here but God strengthened them even while they were weak to be able to do what God and give them victory over these things and that because of that persistence and then trusting in God the whole army was routed by these 300 and took out and the battle was won and he took out the leaders who were in opposition and he comes back victorious because of the Lord so what happens, verse 13 through 17, Gideon now follows up with what he said he was going to do and he was going to repay Succoth and Penuel for their lack of support. And then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle and from the ascent of Harris and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and his elders, 77 men. <laughs> okay, dude, come here. I'm going to interrogate you. You're, going to, you're not going to like it if you don't give up the names. I want to know who the leaders were that making this decision. There were 77 men. And those 77 men reaped what we find here will be the ones that are we see here. He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. He taught the men. What did he teach them? <laughs> I'm not sure what that lesson of taught was. That don't mess around with God and God's people. 
Don't mess around when God is asking you should be supporting. If you're for God, don't be against God. Don't, don't be, be for the enemy versus against God. It won't pay out. There's going to be pain and suffering that comes from that. I mean, when you're talking about dragging him across the thorns of the wilderness and briars, more likely we're going to die of those things. It didn't say they died. They just had taught the men of Sekoth. And then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he ended up ultimately killing the men of the city of Penuel. Because they weren't willing to help in time of need. Then verses 18 through 21. He now deals with the two Mennonite kings and repays them. And he said to Zebia and Salamana, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Oh, interesting question. Why is he asking that question? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, they were my brothers. Now remember, go back and read where these Mennonites would come up and during uh, harvest time, while they were trying to harvest, they would come up and kill people and take all the harvest from them. He, they, these, these same men killed his brothers. That's what happened in Tabor. What happened? How did he respond to that? When they realized that they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives, if you had left them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, arise and kill them. Why? Why would you take your oldest son, you go over there and kill these leaders? Because it was an honor kill. Remember, if you killed someone, you could t- have a vengeance and be able to kill, take their lives because you took their lives. Well, he was giving the privilege of the oldest son to go take out his, un- his uncle's killers. And so, but what did the young man do? But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So these two, these two guys, these were sitting right there looking and watching and hearing all this. And Zeba and, and Salamana said, Arise yourself, Gideon, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. Because they wanted, if I'm going to get killed, at least I'm going to get killed by the leader and not by some youth. That would be really degrading for them from their eyes. So Gideon arose and killed the two guys and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Ah, how did the people respond when this all happened? They immediately turned to Gideon and said, rule over us both you and your son and your grandson. We're willing to want you to be king and him the next king and the next king. You're going to have a whole uh, history of being ruling over us because no question we want you as a ruler. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Remember, they brought him out of captivity, brought him out of the enemy's hands. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Gideon responded absolutely correctly. Only the Lord is supposed to be over you. I'm just just being used by God to to lead you, but I don't rule over you. I lead you. So what happens? The desire of a human king over Israel starts right here. They wanted to have a king early on in their history. Hundreds of years later, (laughs) because he refused. 
But hundreds of years later, in the days of Samuel, the prophet and judge, God gave Israel the king that they asked for. But it took hundreds of years before God finally allowed that to happen. But Gideon had a good response. He understood that it was not his place to take the throne over Israel. He understood that the Lord God was king over Israel, his people. Gideon definitely gave the right answer when he said he didn't want to be a king. But understand as we finish this chapter, the rest of this chapter, even though he said he didn't want to be king, he acted like he wanted to be a king didn't turn out well yes his words were humble but his actions were not humble and it's a reminder for all of us in the ministry anywhere doing anything for God it's easier to talk about humility and service to God than it is to actually live it and we must live it so here in verse 24 says then Gideon said to them I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them, and they spread out a garment, and each man threw into into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, which is about 50 pounds of gold, or 22 kilograms of gold here. I mean, quite a fortune was laying on that little blanket. And besides that, there was crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of the Median. And besides the chains, there were around the, their camel's necks. All that gold on top of that. A fortune. And they were glad to give it to Gideon. Why? Because they knew their lives they, they gave their lives back. They gave him their life back. And so they were willing and happily willing to give to Gideon. Even though Gideon did not deserve this huge fortune. God's the one that did this work. God should have gotten it all. And it kind of gives us a general rule, right? Kind of a rule of thumb, as you would say, as Christian leaders in the ministry. Who make their living from the gifts of God's people who should live at the level of their own people. Not above and not below. Pastors should, if they receive for the work that God is calling them to do for the people, should not live below or above the means of the people. But Gideon chose to live above and receive a lot of fortune above the the average person. Then we see that Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city in Ophrah. Gideon uses the riches he received, right? Am I on 27? Verse 27, yes. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in the city of Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. So an ephod, if you remember, it's almost like a shirt-like garment worn by the priests of Israelites, or by the priests of Israel in Exodus 28. And it was made there, and it had the gems and uh, uh, 
of priestlyhood and, and represented it, and, and again, God used it in a very unique, miraculous way. But why would he take all that gold and make a, an ephod, which is a priestly garment, and then take it to his city where he was going to live? And, uh, but he didn't want to be king. What is he doing with that? He wasn't a priest. He wasn't the king. But he made it into it and still had it and still represented it and people knew it. And so people, a lot of people, if you study this, really thought what Gideon was doing is, yeah, I don't want to have king, but I still want the wealth and I still want the recognition. And I'm still going to have something prominent that you're going to come and see in my city. And it's almost like a, 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 mem- a memorial or a, 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 a stone that you would rise up. He created this, this Ephraim. And, and at the time... The tabernacle, the center of worship for Israel, was in Shiloh in the territory of Ephraim. But now Gideon perhaps sets this rival place of worship to compete against the tribe that gave him such trouble. He wanted something to compete against them. You got the tabernacle? Fine. But I'm going to make an ephod and people are going to come and see this incredible piece of of hardware. We have to be very careful of the ministry, that we're not into competing one ministry against the other ministry. One church against another church. Trying to do something better so that you have an attraction to one building to another building. And, and we see those things played out in, in, even, in even today between churches and, and ministries. And that should not be. Because what happened is, is all Israel played the harlot with it there. And then when you hear those words as a harlot, what it became is an idolatrous object. People came and worshipped this idol in Ophrah where Gideon was living. This beautiful, expensive ephod became a snare to Gideon, to his family, and to all Israel who worshipped it. And again, it's a warning Artistic beauty has a way of impressing us and giving a sense of awe and a pull to say, come look at my building. You should come look at the building and come look here. You won't believe what we've created and the, the cathedrals. I mean, even in the days, right? You go see these cathedrals in Europe. It's a, they created exactly what we see played out here. It was about the building and not the people got to always be about God's people because the church is God's people not the building we're never to impress the people by the building because it can become a distraction and our focus would be on the building and not of the Lord and so Gideon created an ephod to become the, the attention getter and not God and they became the harlot, become idolatrous, because their attention and focus was on the beauty of the stone carver's work of that gold ephod. Now, Gideon was incredibly obedient. He was filled with faith, empowered by God. At the extreme moments of battle, When things got intense and things were really intense, he was right in the moment with God. Focused on the Lord. 
It wasn't until he went back home and got into the routine of daily leaving that seemed to have been the greatest test of his character for Gideon. And that's true for many. The challenges of daily living are more difficult than those of extreme moments where God has to, you need God to raise you up to do great things for God. Those things are moments are incredible and you're so faithful in those moments. But are you faithful in the daily humdrum of life? Do you still worship God? Do you still pursue God? Do you will still allow God to lead you? Do you still God allow, is he really allow him to be Lord and, and not only Savior, but Lord and Master of your life on the daily things? Verse 28, then the median was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So peace came 40 more years again after coming out of that captivity and then and Jerubbabel, Gideon, right, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons. Yes, that's a seven zero. Not 17, not seven, 70. Who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Why is that, <laughs> Why is that important? Well, he didn't want to be king, but everything in his life showed that he wanted to be a king. Kings created uh, harems. And had many wives and have many kids. And because those were all outward signs that you were wealthy and you were a king and you were to be worshipped and awed and whoa, you have 70 children. Wow, look at all these wives. This is incredible. You must be a very important kind of guy. The Medians were subdued, right? So they had security in the, of the nation. Gideon's rule as a judge was over Israel was a success. Yet in many ways, he was still a spiritual failure because he, at the end, he didn't finish well. He ended up letting it, it went to his head as a leader of God's people. Created a harem. Just a reflection of power, and it's also a reflection of man's inability to control his sexual lust when you have many, many wives. It was never allowed for, by God. For that does not was God's design. The Old Testament never directly condemns polygamy, though the New Testament does in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, and 1 Timothy 3, 2. But the Old Testament, even though it doesn't say you can't polygamy, even though, even though God designed it in the Old Testament to be man and woman, the Old Testament does show the bitter fruit of polygamy. Go back and study Jacob's life and David's life and all the stories of conflict and crisis between these families because there was multiple wives. It was never good. Verse 31, and his concubine who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. Uh-oh, here's another one. It's a concubine, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah, of the Abazarites. So 
He has a concubine as well. He has a son named Abimelech, which we'll know in, in going on in the scriptures. But the name Abimelech means my father, a king. It is the kind of name a king would always name his son after. Again, another indication of really what was in his heart about wanting to be king, even though he said he did not want to. But we see that through Gideon's career, as he was slipping from great heights of faith here at the very end to outright apostasy and rebellion against God, seemed Gideon could handle adversity better than success. Gideon. Some people handle adversity very well doing it God's way. But when they have success and they have peace and everything's great and good and what, that is where they fall apart. And they live worldly, cardinally, because of success and riches and prominence that had been brought to them. That's a word of caution for all of us. If God blesses you, be very careful. If he blesses you in the ministry or blesses you in your life financially, your work, all the positions and power, be very careful. That could actually be your detriment if you can't handle it and do it God's way. Because it's not enough for us to begin well with God. We must continue on throughout our whole Christian life and finish well. Gideon in his later years had to look back to see anything done for God. As he looked back, all he can say is everything that he did for God was always in the past. It's never in the present and nothing projected for the future. That's a very bad sign for someone in your walk. If you keep referring back to what God did in your life back years ago, but what is he doing in your life today? What is he showing you to do for him tomorrow? What is it? Mad sign if you can only talk about the past. And lastly, verses 33 through 35 so it was as soon as Gideon was dead and that the children of Israel again played the harlot of, with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Oh, see, the effect on others. They don't even remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. They completely forget what God had done and is doing and had done. The next generation all went back to the enemy, the false gods, the false ways, worldly ways. They went back to it. You take your eyes off of God, the next generation will follow and it will be worse than what it was when you went through it. It's, it's a really sad moment here because the Israelites sadly regarded Baal as their covenant God, even after all that God had done. And such a warning for us, my brothers and sisters. Don't take your eyes off the God of the Bible. Your Lord Jesus, who has saved you, died for you. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you and, and gives you that assurance of a life with God. Continue to allow him to empower you. Do not grieve God. Continue to be in his word. Allow him to just continue to speak to you through and by the word, by his spirit and truth, so that we will not be like a Gideon and go back 
and like the Israelites, go back in the world. That's not what God has for us. God is coming back for us, my brothers and sisters, soon and very soon. Amen? Father, we thank you and praise you for this evening, Lord, and allowing us to be here to open up.